Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Dave, I have a stack what he sent in from uh, one of our listeners, John Hilton, and uh, I've tinkered with it very slightly. And it's on a theme that we have uh, we visit quite often, actually, on this podcast, which is, uh, is P.G. Woodhouse. It says, are these women P.G. Woodhouse characters or American country singers? He's noticed that a lot of women in American country music have names that make them sound kind of posh and twinkle-eyed, and capable of dancing on tables, much like P.G. Woodhouse characters. So you have to identify whether these are from P.G. Woodhouse or their American country stars. And I give you, I'm going to give you 10 of them. Here they are. Elaine Spanky McFarlane. Spanky McFarlane is an American singer. Uh, he used to be the leader of a group called Spanky and R Gang. You're absolutely right. That's right. Okay, Margie Singleton. Margie Singleton. Don't know. Doesn't sound very Wordhouse to me, but uh, so I'm going to say American singer. She is. She's a country singer from Louisiana who du- uh, du- duetted with George uh, Jones and Farron Young. Lacey Brown. Ooh, God. That sounds like a showgirl that Tuppy Glossop might uh, <laughs> elope with in, in some stories. Uh, I'm going to say Woodhouse. No, no. American singer-songwriter from Amarillo, Texas. Came 12th in the ninth season of American Idol. I'm amazed you don't know this. Corky Purbright? Corky Purbright is definitely, uh, she's probably the sister of Cat's Beat Purbright. Yeah, uh, absolutely From the right. Wood <laughs> story. You're absolutely right. Claude Catamol, Cat's Meat Potter Purbright. That's amazing knowledge. Very good. Okay, Veronica Wedge. Veronica Wedge, what a fabulous name. Isn't that a great name? I'm going to say Woodhouse. She is, the, you're doing very well. She's the beautiful but simple daughter of Lady Hermione and Colonel Egbert Wedge. Of course. Okay, Camille Bright-Smith. Gosh, country singer. Yeah, from Long Beach, California. Kippy Brannan. Is that first name again? Kippy. Kippy, Kippy Brannan. Kippy Gosh. Brannan. American singer. Yep, four singles on MCA. Gloria Salt. 
Glorious. All sounds like sounds like a, a punk name, doesn't it? Does. Uh, glorious salt. salt. Glorious. <coughs> I'm going to say. I'm going to say uh, Woodhouse. She was the athletic girl briefly engaged to Sir Gregory Parslow Parslow. You are doing brilliant. You've got a hundred percent so far. Two to go. Okay, Rhoda Platt. Rhoda Platt, singer, American singer. No, so. no, she's the a, a barmaid. Oh, right. George Worcester, Lord Yaxley thinks he's in love with. And lastly, Juice Newton. Juice Newton, definitely American singer. Uh, she is. Juice, Juice Newton and Silver Spur. She is very well known. I thought you were going to mention uh, when you suggested the topic. I thought, oh, here comes Bobby Wickham. Bobby oh, Wickham, who was who was one of. Uh, I think uh, I think um, Bertie Wooster his his heart beat faster for Bobby Wickham. You know. That's a proper country name, isn't That's it? A, no, she was. Uh, no, I know, but you can see her. You see Bobby Wickham in a, yeah, in a, you, in a you really see a that, pair yeah. of embroidered uh, boots and a, and, a, and a frayed jacket. Anyway, there good. we go. There we go. Good, good work. Thank you from uh, from our man John Milton, John Hilton. Sorry, John right. Milton. That'd be good. Yes, that's, that's another uh, that's another idea for us. Paradise refound. Yeah. So the Rolling Stones record. Um, I've I've just been in Amsterdam, Mark, for a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've got to ask you one question about Amsterdam because I know you're a big cyclist, and obviously we know that Amsterdam is the home of the cycle. People cycle absolutely everywhere. On amazing think? bikes that have back pedal brakes. That, well, didn't know that. Very uncertain, yes. Rather a liability. Go on. The rain was terrible, uh, and this is the only time in my life I've seen huge numbers of people cycling down the street under an umbrella. Oh, my God. It, it, That's got to be dangerous, isn't it? Surely it's got to be dangerous. And the danger is increased by the fact that I did not see, Mark, during my two days in Amsterdam, I did not see one person on a cycle wearing Wearing a helmet. helmet. How does that work? That's insane. (laughs) And literally not one. That's that's completely insane. I mean, their argument would be that, you know, it's, I don't know, that it's, it's, uh, you're, you're in town, therefore you're not going to be going at any great speed. But that's not the point. You don't have to be going at any great speed to fall you know. sideways off a bike. You can be stationary, fall sideways and land on the side of your head and not feel terrific. Yeah, absolutely. That's wrong. Uh, uh, yeah. Very un-Dutch, actually, because Dutch seems they've got a sensible... Well, general. I don't know. They've obviously got a reckless streak that uh, yeah. we, we may, have, may have reckoned without. Um, I found uh, very happily my hotel was just round the corner from uh, from uh, a huge record shop which had been there since the 1950s. Oh right, it what's it called? Concerto, I think it's called Concerto Records or something. It's absolutely extraordinary place because you're used to. Well, we don't have big record stores anymore in this country, do we? Really, but there used to be when there were big record shops. There were big cavernous spaces, weren't there? There were huge warehouses. Yeah. They were they were mega stores. Whereas this place is not like that at all. This is actually a parade of shops, a line of them. I think there's six of them next to each other, all with individual rest, uh, entrances. And you go in there, and each one is like a little like a record cave. But being Dutch, if I may generalise, it's incredibly well organised. 
it's it's not you know it's not just full of stacks of stuff tumbling over themselves all over the place. It's terribly well regulated. This is new vinyl. This is old vinyl. These are new CDs over here are old CDs. You know, absolutely everything perfectly classified. You can tell you're in Holland, but because the the section devoted to the birds is absolutely enormous. It just goes on for miles. Oh, right, with the, with the birds a big thing there. Oh, absolutely huge. Well, I they, wonder they, why. Well, there's that whole seam of American music that was always just really popular in Holland. It's like, you know, people like Randy Newman were always really popular in Holland. You know, Graham Parsons, I don't know, Little Feet. They kind of rootsy American stuff. Yeah. And you, you very often talk to bands, American bands or individual musicians who come into Britain, uh, you know, and you talked in the 80s, well, what are you doing over here? Well, we're coming over to do the whistle test, to do two shows in London and then two in Amsterdam. You know what I mean? And that was a European tour. You didn't go to Germany. There was no interest. You didn't get a France. There was no interest. There was certainly no interest in Italy or Spain or anywhere like that. But Holland, you know, people turned out for that kind of Actually, thing. Actually, it's still a bit like that in the late eighties, wasn't it? Because you must have gone to the the, the Milkveg and uh, the Paradiso and places I went, like that. I went to the Paradiso <laughs> with the B fifty twos. Fantastic. Um, uh, you know, it was um, yeah, it was always the place that visiting American acts did. Yeah, yeah. They, always, they always played. So, you know, clearly... You, People you, sat around on scatter cushions. I couldn't believe that. This was the late 70s, you know. Late 70s, they're always leaping about trying to nut the light fittings in, in, in London, you know. But over there, not so much. So, uh, yeah, I went into the record shop and it's absolutely extraordinary range of stuff. And uh, you'd expect me to say that I came out staggering under the weight of tons of material. Didn't buy anything at all. Not a single thing. Rare because, birds reissues. Well, because the problem, I mean, it is, listen, this is a fantastic record shop. You couldn't whack it at all. It was really, really good. But the days when you could stumble into a record shop in a foreign country and go to a section and go, oh, I've never seen that before. Oh, I better buy that because I will never find it again. Those days have completely gone. And therefore, record shopping abroad doesn't have the same appeal at all as it used to have 20 years ago. But you said such appeal in America because it was so cheap, do you remember? Yeah, but it's not just that. It's the fact that you used to see things. I can remember buying, I don't know, old blues reissues or whatever. This would be the 80s. That's 40 years ago, Mark. Uh, you know, and and you think if I don't buy this, if I don't take this right now, I will never see it again yeah. in my life because there was there was no central repository of information about what there was. Well, now there is. So you didn't know it existed. It wasn't like you were looking for. Of course, it. You were, of course exactly. You were. And uh, whereas nowadays you put the name of anything into Google. And there it is. You know, it's a flat world. You know, we can all have access to that stuff. So the only thing I was looking for, this is the thing I'm looking for at the moment, Mark. Go on. And this is a classic case of the kind of thing that you look for in, in in the 21st century. And I will find it eventually. Do you remember Mick Hucknall had a reggae reissue label? Do you yeah, remember this? I do. Cool, 
called Blood and Fire. It's probably going to turn out that you've got this record, actually, Mark. You've probably got two copies. I'll, I'll sell it to you at a huge <laughs> markup. <laughs> and I remember one of the first releases on Blood, <coughs> Blood and Fire was a record called Darker Than Blue. And it was basically reggae versions of tunes made famous by people like Curtis Mayfield in the middle of the 70s. Uh, so I don't know. It would have, um, I, I can't remember what tunes it had on it, but I remember hearing this at the time thinking, God, this is good. And never, never got it, never had it. And then, and then, um, played you by know, who? Played by reggae artists, you know, well known yeah. reggae artists. I can't remember the names of them, but I just thought, this is such a good idea for a compilation because it, it has a point of view and good compilations have a point of view. Yeah. That certainly did. And uh, I just thought, I'll get that one day. And then I forgot about it for years and years. Of course, you go around looking for old compilations 10 years later. They can't be found because the thing about compilations, they're put together once, they sell out, Nobody ever represses a compilation or anything like that. The licensing agreement only holds for a certain period of time, and therefore they just disappear. And they're really difficult to find in record shops, compilations, you know, because there's just millions of the blooming things, and they all kind of look the same, you know. Uh, you know, they're not found in the alphabetical system. So that's the one I want. So if anyone listening has a copy... Has a spare copy, I want to see... Of Pressing. I want on CD. I don't want on record. <laughs> um, I want it on CD. And uh, yeah, if anybody's got it, please send it my way. I want and, it delivered uh, by hand to my front yeah, door by yes, Tuesday. Absolutely. <laughs> Drums, fingers. <laughs> so anyway, my adventures in concerto records. There's a big display at the front of the shop for the new release by the Rolling Stones. Um, and so. I listened to that on my way back yesterday on the Eurostar. Uh, <laughs> what, a, what a curious thing. You know, I, I, I remember hearing Rolling Stones albums as they came out in all kinds of odd situations. I never, I never projected forward to the day in the 21st century. You'd be travelling <laughs> under the English Channel. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> listening to it via a stream on on a thing on a imagine this hang on a second on a phone via a pair of headphones that work not connected to the phone they work via a thing called bluetooth you know what i mean all those things will have changed and a stream that you didn't pay for you listen to it for free <laughs> delivered to you instantly Absolutely. If you told that to me, you know the the the, um, the week that it's only rock and roll came out, yeah, 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 or, or black and blue, or you know, or, or whatever, I would never have believed you. Um, and so uh, I listened to it, and <laughs> I think it's very interesting. All the kind of the the um, the media response. I get the feeling I haven't followed all the all the reviews, but I get the feeling. That those people writing reviews for the kind of broadsheets, New York Times, Guardian Times, and whatever, they've seized upon it because they they desperately want they desperately want there to be a really good new Rolling Stones album, don't they? Their need for that because because the readers want there want there to they be a really it. good 
They want it. They want it. And they also want to go out and spend 65 quid or whatever it is on the special deluxe edition and all that kind of thing. And I thought that the desire, the desire on the part of those people for it to be brilliant was quite touching, actually. I read a few. It was touching. I read a few of those (laughs) reviews. And uh, we'll get on to this in a moment because actually I'm afraid I agree with a lot of them. But they, um, they, they, they're broadly reviewing the Rolling Stones, though, aren't they? Yes. They're, not reviewing, they're not really reviewing the album. They're reviewing the, the concept of the Rolling Stones that is still going, <laughs> from which we still derive a huge amount of pleasure. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was touching too. But you sent me that piece in the, is it in the Quietus, I think it was, about yeah, the, yeah. About the uh, I thought it was really interesting, actually, about the production of the record, and about the compression of the sound. It's produced by a guy called Andrew Watt, who produced, uh, well, recently Justin Bieber and Tua Lipa and various people, but also Ozzy Osbourne, Elton John, Did Iggy Pop, Paul McCartney, etc. Renowned, and also uses auto-tune a lot, apparently, but but renowned for his compression of sound. Yeah. And there's a bit in the Quartus Review that says, uh, he said, I'm going to quote this, is their individual instrumental parts blend into one monolithically ugly blob, suffering a similar fate to the catatonic souls collectively imprisoned and intertwining within Freddy Krueger's gammy chest. <laughs> you think, my God, is it really that bad? And he's got a point, to be fair, he has got a point. It's that very compressed sound. I was watching The Stones. They had two documentaries on the telly a couple of nights ago, and there was a uh, footage of them in 1974. I thought the thing was so wonderful about their sound was the space in it and the whole and the swing. There were moments when you just those two guitars would fade away and the bass would come up and there would just be a little bit of piano in the background and just and everything kind of there was room to man- maneuver within it. There were no there were no holes. This has no holes in it. This record. It's just a constant barrage of sound, isn't it? And that's a bit relentless. But on the positive side, I, I, I Dave, I really liked it. <laughs> I really liked it. You have to ask yourself, what do you want from a Stones album now? And the truth is, I don't really want another Stones album, actually. I don't want one. I'm not sitting here waiting for one. Um, I'm quite happy for them to do some old. But, you know, it's the first, isn't it? It's the first record for 18 years of, of, of their um, original songs. And, but I, I, I also, the lyrics, I don't care about the lyrics. Most of those reviews are about the lyrics, aren't they? I don't care what they're writing about. I don't want to hear the Stones uh, offering their political opinions. I have no interest. I don't want to hear the Stones. I, what I want is interesting observations about life, which you don't get. Uh, I, I'd love to hear them writing about the whole concept of getting old, which they don't do because they won't really acknowledge it, because that is interesting. Musicians getting older and talking about differences in their life. A lot of this record is about uh, Mick Jagger's love life and Mick Jagger's sex life. I literally couldn't be less interested in that. So I didn't listen to the lyrics at all. But I did feel that they were really good songs. There's not a duff track on it, though. I'm sorry. There isn't. They're really beautifully written. <laughs> Those who are listening to this can't see David Hepworth laughing quietly and inaudibly. No, no, they're not riffs. You know, these are proper songs. These are verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, solo. Beautiful chord sequences. Three of them written with this guy, Andrew Wall. Chord sequences. Oh, they were great. Honestly, a break. Right, hold on. You've had you've had your say. All right, all right. Over to you, sir. (laughs) I've been thinking. I was thinking about this all the way back yesterday. You know, all the years of listening to Rolling Stones records, you know, which in my case goes back to like 1964 or whatever it is. And, um, and what I realised looking back on it, the, the kind of, the, the quality of Rolling Stones records 
all comes down to one really simple thing, riffs. It is all about riffs. And I can remember the first time I heard The Last Time or Satisfaction or Jumpy Jack Flash or Gimme Shelter or even Start Me Up or Tumbling Dice, you know, Rocks Off, Hey Negrita, Brown Sugar, it's only rock and roll. You, you always had the same feeling when you heard them for the first time. I want to hear that again. I want to hear that again, because it's got a little itchy, scratchy little idea in here. And it might have been Keith, or it might have been Mix, or it might have just happened with the five of them together. But they just had those kind of little moments that you just want to repeat. Take me back to that track. Play that again. And I I, I can't hear it too many times. There is nothing on this record nothing on this record where you think that at all nothing you can you can say you know it's all very evened out you know and that's partly the production and you know it might be as you say they are more verse chorus verse and oh, they're lovely that. soulful tunes they're beautiful tunes they're not riffs it's I'll the admit, it's not about riffs it, well, well, okay if, that's if your issue the if the rallies are not about riffs <coughs> what the hell are they about for crying out loud because that's what we remember. That's what gets us excited. That's what people danced to in the days when the Rolling Stones were quite rightly regarded as a dance band, not a rock band. Um, and they, they've got loads of things that pretend to be really good riffs, and they're kind of all right. <laughs> Nothing more than all right. The other thing... It's a slightly duff one, actually. It's slightly duff, but not that duff, with Paul McCartney playing bass on it. But it's fun to hear Paul McCartney playing bass with the Stones. But, but also, the other thing, I don't want to hear any guest artists with the Rolling Stones. You know, the idea of a track list, you go, with Elton John. Oh, come on. You're the Rolling Stones. Oh, Lady Gaga wants terrific. Have you seen the footage of her out-singing Mick? It's just a fierce kind of sound clash. Really, really funny. But I, this, I, I got one additional observation which struck me because the the lyrical content, you know, it's supposed to be about their lives, but it doesn't offer any illumination. Nothing at all. No revelation. Nothing, because it, actually they're just moving around a load of cliches. Um, you know, I couldn't help thinking about this. That track, you know, what was it? What's he called? Angry. Is it called Angry? Yeah. Or is it? That's about, that's about Mick <laughs> Jagger's, Lack of sex life, isn't it? <laughs> Which, so, I'm sorry, none of us believe anyway. No, you know, don't no. believe it. I could not be less interested in it. And then, but also, also, the word angry is, is such a kind of, is it, it's a wishy-washy word in a song, really. Because, you know, anger comes in a million different shades, doesn't it? From irritation to rage. Yeah. <laughs> all of which are more interesting than the word angry. The word angry doesn't say anything at all. And they've, all, they've got this problem, really, that what do they write songs about? And this is particularly a problem when you look at a group whose heritage, bear with me, Mark, yeah. is all about two things, sex and violence. Not necessarily together, but... That's what the Rolling Stones music has always been about. Sex and violence. They can't do that anymore. Nobody can do that anymore. No, songs like Brown Sugar, it could no longer play, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. 
But here's what they could do, Mark. And I've had an idea, and I bet if I told Mick Jagger this idea, right now he'd go, bloody hell, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> Seriously. Tell me, and I'll pass it on to him. <laughs> and, and I know this because, actually, we talked to somebody about six months ago. It was a, it was a kind of social acquaintance of Mick Jagger, and uh, he, he mentioned this. Simon Seabag Montefiore, who wrote a fantastic book, what's he called? The World or whatever, which is yeah, History of the World. Yeah. History of the World Tell Via Families. What's the one, one subject that all blokes in the 70s and 80s are legitimately interested in? Absolutely every single one of them, without exception, history. History. The Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards could write songs inspired by famous people in history. They could do that. They could, they could have everything that had made Rolling Stones music exciting and, uh, and kind of transgressive and strange, but they could do it under the guise of it being about Hitler, about Trotsky, about Nell Gwynn, about John Brown, about Marcus Garvey, about Mandy Rice Davis, about Charles de Gaulle, you know, about Napoleon Bonaparte. They could do that. The Rolling Stones writing songs about history or inspired by the characters of history would be everything that you want a Rolling Stones record to be in the 21st century and would do do well, and would move them somewhere. Not have them going back to what they attempted to do 15 years ago. So that's my, that's my prescription for the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, History of the World, Volume 1, and then carry on until they all fall off the twigs. That's my prescription. What do you think? I, I, I quite like it actually. Also, it gives them a, an opportunity, whether they have anything original to say about them, I don't know, but it gives them an opportunity to tell stories and stories they love. You know, stories, stories, just stories full of characters, full of, full of well, there's as much sex and violence as you possibly want. Absolutely. But, 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 you know, just, just complicated, exciting, thrilling stories full of characters. They're all there. Absolutely. And whereas there's nothing of that in that. In this new record at all, nothing else. You know, back back in the day, you know, I always go back to my one of my favourite Rolling Stones records, Aftermath, and uh, and I remember listening to that. It was a long time ago now, and you thought these people have been to places I will never go, and and they're bringing back messages from places I will never go, mm. and and they don't ha- they haven't had that for years. Or, or, or maybe they're just censoring themselves. Maybe they have been to those places. You know, you know, you know. My ex-wife married Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> the thing, you know, that that that. Don't you, think, don't you think the biggest obstacle for the Rolling Stones is this obsession with their self-consciousness about appearing to want to appeal to young people? Oh the, yes. The, 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 whatever they might think about, they're thinking. But would a twenty-year-old like that? Yes. Would a 20-year-old understand? Would I be relating to them? And therefore, that must be one of the reasons they don't do it. If they let all that go, as so many songwriters do, and just drifted older with their audience and thought, I will write songs about experience seen from my particular perspective at this point in my life, 
then that appeals to the people there. And actually, also appeals, of course, to the younger younger audience because what they don't want is these kind of hollow overtures. I mean, as I said earlier on, my thing is I don't listen to the lyrics. I don't want to hear the tortuous rhymes of "Live by the Sword." Uh, oh you know, God! I, I just I don't want to hear them much. I, I couldn't get through the whole song, but I did like the song. I thought the song was fantastic. I thought the, I thought the tunes were great. I thought the feeling of the record was wonderful. But I've you know I, I think it's the best. Though it's, I've enjoyed it most probably since Black and Blue, which was a long time ago. That was the point where I thought it was all over slightly for the Stones. I saw them twice in 1976 when that came out. I thought that's it. It'll never get any better for me. The Stones will never improve. I'm going to move on. And look at other things. And to some extent, I've been right. That's 47 years ago. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> the Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Did you see that um, post that somebody put up about uh, a Morrissey fan who had hired an aeroplane? To fly with a protest message, <laughs> so old school, over Capitol Records in Los Angeles. And the message uh, trailed out from behind the plane, read, release Moz's bonfire of teenagers. And <laughs> you're aware of the story of this record, right? If you're you're really, you're the Morrissey correspondent. Well, the, uh, the bonfire of teenagers was recorded, I think it was recorded in, which is still supposed to be the upcoming new album, recorded in 2020. And it's got Iggy Pop on it. It's got Flea and Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers, various other people. It was scheduled for release by BMG in May 2021. He then fell out with BMG. So the record didn't come out. He was signed to Capitol in 2022. The album was scheduled for release in, in February 2023. He then fell out with Capitol. Uh, and they now won't release the rights to the record. So his whole thing is that he claims they've sabotaged it, you know. And I just thought as an, in an idle moment, I'd go back and just see how many record labels Morrissey has had, how many different labels for his 13 albums. And do you know what the answer to that is, Dave? Go on. Eight. So that's in 13 albums. In eight, you start off with HMV, and then there's Parlophone, then RCA, then Island. Do you remember them? Sanctuary, Decca, Harvest. 
BMG, well, no, nine, sorry, nine, because of course Capital as well, who's now fallen out with, is now shopping around to get another label. So my, my thought is, how difficult must it be to work with Morrissey? Because that's not good, is it? My thought is, um, and I, I'm no expert on Morrissey, but he is the eternal teenager, isn't he, really? He's basically, you know, Morrissey has been in his room for about the last 40 years, hasn't he? You know, and, uh, and just waiting for the world to deliver his yeah. tea, tea outside the door. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. not coming right, out. Right You're not coming out. Have you tidied your room? No. <laughs> angrily writing, pressing very hard with his barrow, angrily writing uh, uh, messages to, 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 to music papers, hoping they'll publish them. <laughs> it's so unfair. Capital won't release my record. I've been sabotaged. It's not fair. Tears your eyes. That's what he is. You know, yeah. you, you only know he's there from the, you know, by, there'll be a trail of cereal bowls, you know, around the house to indicate where he's been. You know, we've all had teenagers, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, teenagers are to be found. Somebody padding around just wearing a pair of boxer shorts <laughs> generally, and a supergrass T-shirt. <laughs> generally to be found on the middle of Sunday afternoon, still half naked under a duvet in front yeah. of the television. You know, yeah, yeah. You want to think, you know, on Christmas Day, this... <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was my my son when he was about I don't know about sixteen or something, and uh, we we slaving over getting everything ready for you know Sunday for lunch and Christmas Day, and then he comes out of bed about half past twelve and starts making a bacon sandwich, you know, which I think. <laughs> I thought this was the most teenage thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, ten minutes before the meal, absolutely bacon sandwich. It says Absolutely. he found Wayne's World is on on the, on the, <laughs> on film four. So I'll be back in two hours. They just hear the, the ominous sound of a can of beer cracking open. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that aside from the bacon sandwich is Morrissey. You know, what I mean, it the, is. what what makes Morrissey happy? is making a large number of people unhappy. That's basically, that's his primary motivation as life, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Whatever the plan is, I'll scupper it. <laughs> Whether it, yeah. you know, uh, what was that business where he did, uh, he cancelled a load of dates, didn't he? Because they'd been, uh, he couldn't control the, 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 couldn't ensure that it was entirely vegan output at the, uh, at the kind of merchant, at the, at the food stalls, wasn't it something like that? Yeah, it that? was. Yeah. You're always looking for yeah. reasons to fall out with people. And that's it? the final straw. <laughs> yes. You know, because if you, you know, if you've got eight record companies trying to put your record out and you can't agree with anything, anyone, I would suggest that's your problem. It's not the You'd record. Think so, wouldn't you? There's a pattern emerging here. <laughs> and, and let's just remind ourselves this teenager we're talking about, Mark. How old is this teenager? Oh, God, I don't know. That's a good point. How old would Morrissey be? Well, he's got to be 64, about, 65. About 1970, I would have thought, I suppose. I don't know, really. He would have been about 25 in 85, wouldn't he? Well, Come we're going to have that. to look that up during yeah. the break. <laughs> See, but you know, the, uh, he's the oldest teenager in town, isn't he? Yes. And, uh, but uh, again, I was talking about, you know, you know, 
how I, un, impossibly it would have been to predict listening to a Rolling Stones record. 64. I just looked at it. 64. Listening to a Rolling Stones record in the Channel Tunnel <laughs> back in the day. Back in the day, if you'd said at some point in the future, somebody will hire an aeroplane to fly over Capitol Records holding out a banner, suggesting that somebody, you know, release an unreleased Morrison record. People would have, would have said you were high, wouldn't they? <laughs> if, you, if you suggested that that was ever going to occur. You see, obviously, the person who did that gets more fun out of their extravagant way of publicising their complaint about the drug order than they would ever get from the record itself. You know, that's the nature of modern fandom, isn't it? You know what I mean? You're always seeking more extreme ways to express the fact that your devotion to it is greater than anybody else's. Yep. You've hired an aeroplane. You've gone and I done I care more than you. Absolutely. Oh, dear. That never would have happened back in the day. So what were you saying was the anniversary of David Bowie's pin-ups? pin-ups, that, yeah. Pin-ups. Exactly it came out almost exactly... 50 years ago, pretty much today, actually, we're recording this on the, what is it, 22nd today, it came out the 19th of October, 1973. And I was just thinking about the circumstances of that, because I can remember he was in the middle of renegotiating his songwriting uh, contract, wasn't he? Who was managing Tony DeFries, wasn't it? Tony DeFries. They decided they weren't going to put a record who, who, had, who had really, you know, and, and don't forget many, many years later, decades later, uh, David Bowie had to buy back those rights yeah. of Tony DeVries. Yeah. He, he did, did a disastrous, terrible publishing deal. And it cost him a fortune many years later to get back that stuff. So obviously this was this was put out as a way of not not putting out my own new songs, wasn't it, really? Yeah. It was. It was a way around it. But it's a really good record. I mean, it's a fantastic record, isn't it? Friday on my mind, sorrow. Where all the good times gone? See Emily play. Here comes the night. Fantastic record. I, I'm and, just, and I remember there was a there was a sort of almost a legal action because Brian Ferry had recorded these foolish things, his covers album. I think Bowie came up for him I about a week that. before or something, and he tried at, at some point he was going to try and get a, a legal action to stop that coming I out, which of course he couldn't do. How you could possibly get a legal action to stop it coming? I don't know, but that was the rumor. But Very interesting. Br- and I'm, I'm, my theory is that's the first great covers album, pinups. It's the first, there have been quite a few good ones since, but that was the first great one, I thought. Well, I suppose it was around that time that people, so 1973 is around that time when people start looking back at the 60s, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, then I think people in the 60s had made records of the 50s tunes, hadn't they? They must have done. Um, but this is about the same time as, do you remember, there's a really good compilation on Decca, put together by Roy Carr and I think Charlie Murray, called Hard Up Heroes. Do you remember this? I don't remember that. Was an, that was an enemy thing, was it? No, it wasn't. It was, no, it was just, done, just done for Decca, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and that was look, all those kind of... Um, 60s beat bands that had only had one hit but were uh, kind of worthy of um, of being uh, being celebrated. And this, the Bowie thing, I'm just looking at it here, <laughs> the curious track. 
because you've got Rosalind, which is the pretty things, the great pretty things. God, those those early pretty things records, Rosalind. Uh, you know, uh, don't bring me down, yeah. Hon- honey. I need my God. You talk you talk about rock and roll records. We were talking earlier about the people's attempts to um, you know to record rock and roll in a way that makes it sound exciting. Go and listen to those records. They came out in Phillips in 1965 or whenever it was. Done by the pretty things and uh, honey, I need is unbelievable. And then he can't, here comes the night is, is a Van Morrison them song. I wish you would is Yardbirds, isn't it? I think it is. I think it's a Billy Boy Arnold song that the Yardbirds did. See, Emily play, obviously, Pink Floyd. Uh, can't explain the who. Uh, Friday in my mind, the easy beats, Sorrow in the Merseys, Don't Bring Me Down. Is that another? That's another pretty things tune. Shapes of things, Yardbirds. Anyway, anyhow, anywhere, who? Where have all the good times gone? The Kinks. So these these are all big celebrated groups. The only exception is track five on the first side, which is Everything's All Right by the Mojos. Do you remember? Mm. Do you remember? Which was quite a big hit. Yeah. And, uh, and then they never Not did the same it. league. They yeah. never did anything at all. They, they, there's no mythology around the Mojo. No, no, there isn't. Um, but also offer one... Possibly controversial opinion. I think Brian Ferry kind of won that little battle with um, was it these foolish things and then yeah, it was these foolish things and then yeah. another time, another place because these foolish things uh, was a really popular record, and the reason it was really popular is it had that really audacious version of um, "Hard Rain's Gonna Fall," oh, which is. It's still a fantastic record. It's a really up-tempo version of a Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall. Really unexpected version. Of was a Jealous Bob Guy on that? I can't remember. Can't remember. No, Jealous Guy. Get... Jealous Guy was on Roxy Music thing later. That I was later, wasn't it? That's right. I yeah. think I'm right saying, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I've got my copy of These Foolish Things here from Brian Ferry. This is very exciting. After this... this this next thing is very exciting breakthrough in podcasting. I'm going to take off the shrink wrap of this record bought in the early 70s. Okay, you ready? Yes. Could you That's quite that? a moment. Could you hear that? There you go. Unboxing, that. live. <laughs> That's uh, brilliant. There it is. These foolish things. Our hard rains are going to fall, track one. Um, River of Salt. I don't know, don't know who's that was by. Don't ever change, Car- uh, Gerald um, Goffin and King. Peace of my heart, which you know was it Irma Franklin, yeah, Dennis uh, Joplin, and so forth. Baby, I don't care. Yes, that is you're so square, baby. I don't care. Which later on, Joni Mitchell didn't is, didn't she do that? I think I've got a recording of Joni Mitchell doing that. It's my party. It's my what a party, great record. and I'll cry if I want to. Cry if I want to. Uh, Leslie, Leslie, Leslie Gore. Yes, don't worry, baby. Uh, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys. Sympathy for the Devil. Obviously, the Stones. Tracks of My Tears. Mikey Robinson. You won't see me, Lennon McCartney. Brilliant uh, choice. I love how you love me. Yes, I don't. I can't remember who did the how they hit with that. Anyway, loving you is sweeter than ever. Four tops. And these foolish things, obviously the old um, 
the old tune. So, you know. So you think Ferry wins, Ferry versus Bowie? That, that's my personal opinion, you know. Other, other opinions are available freely. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And we're joined by a birthday guest, Kahal Chu. Very nice to see you again. And on, uh, when was the birthday? Uh, my birthday was actually last Sunday, so a week ago. And what? how was this celebrated? Well, I mean, it's... I'm at a, I'm at a, at an age where I, where I'm so old that I don't bother celebrating anybody, and everybody else makes a bigger deal on my birthday than I do. No, you can talk uh, to us. <laughs> we totally understand this. Um, so what I did was I went to see a movie at the uh, London Film Festival, and in the evening I went to uh, the Big Easy in Canary Wharf for dinner with family. Oh, very, very nice, good. Very, very good. Nice. Very so, nice. look, have you got a, a, a something you want to a log to chuck on the conversational fire? Well, I'd, I'd like to bring up the subject of between song chat at concerts because um, it's a it's a very much underrated aspect of a live show. Because which acts, in your opinion, give the best and the worst uh, between song chats? I mean, the, the worst in terms of uh, by that, let, let's leave out the obvious sort of ill-advised rants from the likes of Eric Clapton or Roger Waters. And who who's the best at, at chatting between songs? Uh, leaving out obvious, hilarious, but very obviously scripted uh, skits from the likes of Bare Naked Ladies. So who's the best and the worst at chatting between songs? God, I, I can remember seeing Richard Hawley once, who is very good. Richard Hawley's thing was he used to just tell gags in between songs, not related to any of the songs. They're very good. I can remember him saying, uh, so I read this article in the Sunday Times last week. He said about the perils of drinking drinking over 21 units a week. And he said, and that's it. I thought that's, 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 that's gone far enough. From now on, no more reading. And I thought, that's really good. <laughs> See, that's an interesting example of, of a slightly different technique, which is I'm going to use the opportunity between songs to tell a joke, or to pass on a joke. Yeah, yeah. Because Bob Dylan goes through long periods of not saying anything at all on stage, doesn't he? Literally, not even good evening and yep. goodbye. But then he'll go through periods where he'll tell jokes. Didn't he, Mark? He went through Oh, he period. did? Oh, yeah. He used to say, yeah, my, my girlfriend's a tennis, uh, tennis umpire. Love means nothing to her. You know? That's right. And then, and then go on to the next song. And didn't he do this thing the other night in, uh, where was he? Where was he playing where he mentioned Jimmy Reed? Mark, what was that? Oh, that Jimmy thing? Reed is fantastic. Well, that wasn't really a joke. It's just an extraordinary thing. He said, he said, good, he played goodbye, Jimmy Reed. And he said, um, he said, if you don't know who Jimmy Reed is, then go home and look him up in Wikipedia. And I thought <laughs> that was just so bizarre. Then, it's just the idea of Bob Dylan saying the word Wikipedia was so memorable to you me. You see, that, that's quite funny. But um, I would, two things on this, on this subject. Bands are traditionally terrible at it because mm. they are never happy oh. to have a spokesman. And so if you get one person speaking and it's going down really well, the band hated. Yeah. You can tell they really resent it. And so they'll, you know, the bass player will then sidle up to the microphone and offer some kind of additional footnote in order to, to break the moment, you know yeah. what I mean? In order to just crowbar themselves into it. Really, Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the best ones and tend to be solo singers, you know, they, yeah. Uh, they, or obvious band leaders like Bruce Springsteen, where his speech, which he doesn't do a, as much of now, is a massively important part, of, massively important part of the whole thing. It's not just there to 
to link it up. It's there to make it all seem like one story, to make it feel like a total entertainment experience. And I don't think most people do that, you know, but um, it's a hugely important thing. And I can remember Mark and I used to talk about this years ago and smash hits. And when you get 14, 13, 14 year olds, we go to the first gig, they go and see Duran Duran or whoever it was. And when they wrote in about it, they all say, they all said the same thing. And he talked to us. Yeah. <laughs> and it was really, really value for money for people, you know, to, to go along. They don't just want to hear the songs. They want to feel that somebody spoke to them. You know, it's a, it's a value. Well, you could argue that if people are playing the same songs every night, which a lot of, a lot of times they are, uh, then it's those improvised bits in between that make that a unique show. That's, that exactly, is the most yes. memorable thing about it. What are your What are your experiences? Who do you think's been the best? Um, well, I've never seen Barbara Streisand live, but apparently she has she has an auto cue for her between song chat. I bet. Oh, I God, bet. No. I know Dolly Parton. I was sorry to interrupt you. I once went to a Dolly Parton show at Hammersmith, and uh, and. I looked behind me, and she, and there was the autocue uh, on the front of the balcony, with the scripted ad libs were were rolling. I saw that with Diana Ross too. Absolutely. Sorry, carry Diana on. Diana Ross on. thing literally said, "Hello, Madison Square Garden." Oh, <laughs> imagine that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. the, the worst, the worst that between song uh, song chat that I've seen is uh, Fiona Apple. Because she said absolutely zero between each song. She, no, but she barely said thank you between each song. So she, she was the worst. Uh, the best um, two that come to mind. Uh, number one, Neil Hannon of, of the Divine Comedy. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. He's very avuncular, very chatty, um, very funny. Uh, he, he, Sorry, he, interrupt once again. A vicar's son. Ah, well. This is yeah. not insignificant. No. If you if you've grown up with a parent who was quite Who's used to any kind of social occasion and could say a few words, they know the value of this. Carry on, sorry. Uh, the other one really good at in between song chat is uh, Narina Palo, because I've seen her about twenty times, and every and her between song chat is actually half the show because she's I'm always sure. really funny, very self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she's talked about things that before, like. Um, how she's bought this new dress for this gig, but uh, as you can see, it doesn't quite fit her properly because she, she isn't well endowed enough to fit it properly. Uh, she's bemoaned the fact that the only famous person she, ser she shares her birthday with is Melania Trump and things like that. That's good, but you remember it. But no, exactly. it's really good. It's, it's really, really good. Really important. I, and your Fiona Apple case is, you know, I think it's terrible because it, it's sort of just rude. Yes. It's like inviting people into yeah. your home and, and then not, not saying a word to them, you know. It's it's just kind of basic, but I suppose it's... It's also arrogant, the idea you think that your presence and your songs is enough. It's just not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, no, I'm glad you've uh, I'm glad you've raised that subject because I'm sure there, there'll be many people listening who, who feel the same thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and may have their own uh, their own nominations. Yeah. So thanks very much, and uh, belated happy birthday as of thanks. last week, uh, and all the very best to you. The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since two thousand and seven. There was a nice uh, email from Mike Ash talking about bad band names, uh, <laughs> and a huge list of the worst names he thought groups have had: uh, anti pasty beans on toast, get cape, wear cape, fly. La la la, human steps. 
uh, Yola Tengo, etc. My my thing about bad band names is I know the answer, and we've discussed this before. I think I know the answer to what the worst band name ever has been. Go on, and I think it's to do with uh, names that are so terrible. See, I don't know in his list. I don't know how good uh, car seat headrests music is, but I suspect that if it was good, I would have. I would probably have heard about it by now. My feeling is that it's it's groups who produce records that are absolutely wonderful and sublime and that people ought to hear them and a lot of people would love to hear them but have been put off by the terrible note. And the answer is Prefab Sprout. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I really do think because the Prefab Sprout records are wonderful, but it's a name so embarrassing to try and tell somebody who didn't know much about music at a party that one of your favourite groups was called Prefab Sprout just reflects badly on you. You're embarrassed. You're self-conscious about it. You can't imagine the the meeting at the BBC where they decide to do the classic programme, the documentary about the ring by Prefab Sprout. It's a very, very hard sell. And I think I think that's one, that's an example, the prime example actually, of a group whose, whose career was hobbled by having an idiotic name. An idiotic name that was probably cooked up at three o'clock in the morning after a lot of intoxicants, but somebody just pointed out they misheard the lines from uh, We Got Married in a Fever, Hotter than a pepper sprout, which is where it came from. Which yeah, is, you know, yeah. that's that's that does not that should not have constituted a, a lifetime's career saddled with this terrible though. They're so also that's they're also handicapped by the naming of the first LP, wasn't? It? Isn't that right? Is it the first LP? Because it was Steve McQueen. Wasn't that's right. It, yeah, in the UK, but they obviously couldn't use that in the United States um, because the fear that the yeah. state of or whatever representatives of Steve McQueen would object, and they're afraid. That's it. Two Wheels Good, which is a really good title. It is a really good title. But if you get those kind of things wrong, it can be a handicap. I agree. Also, uh, an email from Gareth in, in Limestone Hills, New Zealand. We were talking about we were talking about the gramophone, the classical music magazine, uh, the, the other week, and he, he used to be involved with it at one stage and uh, worked with the original owners. And you're talking about their extraordinary... Uh, library of records for review. And so they used to send out classical records to, to their army reviewers all over the world or whatever to, to, um, you know, give their judgment on this or that recording and performance. And then they would ask for them back. I know that's amazing, isn't it? Because <laughs> one of the reasons that you and I used to actually review <laughs> albums, because you got yes. to keep it. Keep the record. Especially with a box set and you couldn't afford it. You know, that's, I've got uh, most of the stuff I've got up in the attic. A lot of it I got from, from free when I was at the NME or whatever. But I suppose I, I, I have, I have heard of this when I was talking to Chris Pollard, who was the owner of it. Uh, years ago, that they said that they had a library where where you could go back and compare the new recording to you know recordings from from ten years before or whatever. And uh, by the early nineties, this is Gareth. By the early nineties, the library had been converted more or less entirely to CDs, and the Shellac and Vinyl Library had been consigned to a barn in Buckinghamshire, a very nice barn, it must be said, of considerable dimensions that contained nearly every record released in the UK from 1923 until the early 70s, if I recall correctly, when they dropped the pretense of covering popular music. There, alongside Beethoven, were the original LP releases by the Beatles, Beach Boys and Bonzo Dog Band in mint condition. I still drool at the memory. That's a Quite lovely right. That's a lovely idea. I am too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know. Well, it's always nice to hear from people. 
Uh, also, John Penny has been following up on our um, Stankwaddy game the other week about is it a town, a little village in Somerset, or is it a Jamaican musician? Uh, and uh, he says, I may have had an advantage being from Bristol, but surely everyone has heard this by the, the mighty Wurzels, an ode to Nemt Well, It's an absolutely extraordinary thing. So what else have we got to talk about? We should mention we've got a, we've got a gig coming up, haven't we? We've got, a, we've got an got event all the 20, ones. 21 Soho on October. It's Monday, October the 30th, where we're talking to John Higgs about his KLF book and uh, to Ian Brody about his, um, about his memoir about the being in the lightning seeds. And on November the 27th, we have the, the punk doubleheader Absolutely. with Glenn Matlock and um, Pauline Murray of Penetration, who both have uh, very interesting memoirs out. So they'll be good. Yeah, tickets on sale. Tickets on sale. Full details below. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.